0: hello everyone this one is episode 23 and it's titled you cross the line julian of norwich i think that's a good title because this one's going to be about julian of norwich and multiple definitions of sin so this will be interesting right let's get it started in the day, I had to write a paper on Julian of Norwich. I don't remember it being a particularly good paper, but it was a paper nonetheless, right? So it's really fascinating because back in the day when I first uh, went to a seminary, which is like pastor's college, I read a lot of these figures, but There was something about them that they didn't resonate with me or I didn't appreciate them at the time, perhaps because I hadn't really lived too much of life yet. I don't know how else to word that, but there's something about some of these figures from church history that you can't appreciate them until you've had some ups and some downs. And, in some sense, you can't really read these figures until you know how to read poetry. So some of these figures, um, not just Julian of Norwich, but uh, past ones that I've done on St. John of the Cross and future ones on Bernard of Clairvaux. I mean, some of these people are just profound, but we've become so academic and scientific in our approaches to reading that we don't often let these pieces that we read affect us at the core of who we are. So there's something about having a hermeneutic or, or putting your whole self before some of these writings that really kind of makes them come more alive in that way. But Julian of Norwich just recently had one of her feast days. She's not technically called a saint, um, not by the Catholic Church, but she is venerated, I believe, in Lutheranism and Anglican churches. And so she's very much well known as around the world, but even though she's not a saint, I still think she has some great things to say. She is potentially the earliest female writer in English history. So she lived from 1342 to 1416, and at around 30 years old, or so she says in her journals, She underwent a terrible, terrible sickness that almost took her life. And in the midst of this, her mother was there by her side trying to attend to her. And there was a a point where she even was given the last rites, which in the early or medieval ages, that's what the Catholic Church used to do. They would give you your last rites before you pass away. R-I-T-E-S. But when she was in this terrible sickness, she saw 16 visions, which she wrote about immediately. When she recovered her health, she took out everything that she could to write with. But the fascinating thing is that she rewrote them, these reflections on these visions, 30 years later. And so what are some things that she says that are really deep? Well, she's well known for describing God as mother, or at least describing God as having maternal qualities. There might be something to the fact that her mother was there as she was almost passing away. The attentiveness and the care and maybe the love that she felt as she was lying there almost dying looking up at her mother that really taught her a lot about who God is and what God is really like. She was far more Trinitarian in her approach than most people her day. And she said some really interesting lines, such as, to love means to include having a willingness to suffer pain for the other. And then she even goes in other places to talk about how the atonement or the ability of God to fix things is far, far greater than Adam and Eve's or yours and mine abilities to mess things up. And yet here we are sometimes in church circles that seem to emphasize the opposite of that. But Julian didn't, didn't go that route. And so in some of her writings, she said some things that have really become famous quotes. So for instance, her most famous one might be, All will be well, all will be well, in every manner of things all will be well you've probably seen that in some capacity in pop culture even in america you may have seen it in religious art i've seen people have it as tattoos there are a lot of places where that phrase has popped up there are even songs that have been written just using those four lines All will be well, all will be well. In every manner of thing, all will be well. Now, the real struggling thing about this is, as I was rereading Julian of Norwich and going through the showings, which is what this 16 reflections are called, there's a short version and a long version. Again, I said they're about 20 or 30 years apart from one another. The short and the long version have that line. All will be well. All will be well. In every manner of thing, all will be well. But it comes after she says sin is necessary. Now, whoa, 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 whoa. That seems quite a large statement. Sin is necessary. She doesn't quite go into defining why she says it that much. It's kind of elusive the way that she writes that, but how dare she say that sin is necessary? But if we look at this, I'm going to flip open uh, my copy. It says, uh, I'm holding in my hands the classics of Western spirituality edition. Of Julian's showings. And. uh, In the 27th chapter. (laughs) She writes. And so in my folly. Before this time. I often wondered why. Through the great prescient wisdom of God. That the beginning of sin was not prevented. For then it seemed to me. That all would have been well. Had God prevented Sin. The impulse to think this was greatly to be shunned, and nevertheless I mourned and sorrowed on this account unreasonably, lacking discretion. But Jesus, who in this vision, this is her 13th vision, informed me about everything needful to me, and answered with these words and said, Sin is necessary. But all will be well, and all will be well, and every kind of thing, all will be well. And she goes on further In this naked word, sin, our Lord brought generally to mind all which was not good, and the shameful contempt and direst tribulation which he endured for us in this life. For we are all in part troubled. And we shall be troubled following our master until we are fully purged of our mortal flesh and all of our inward affections, which are not very good. This is a really incredible thing that she says. Sin is necessary. But then she goes on to say that it's a good thing even for those that believe in God. Now, That's why I think the title of You Cross the Line, Julian of Norwich is interesting. I think it's a good title for this one because I think it would be helpful just to go through a number of different definitions of sin that I've heard over the years, okay? Now, my hope is maybe to... um, give you more than a simplistic bumper sticker definition that's maybe been overused and we have all become tired of. So if you have a piece of paper, you can write on it six numbers. One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay? Because I'm going to go through five different definitions and then I guess a main point, I guess, at the end. So... As I was rereading Julian of Norwich and I was trying to think of how can she say that sin is necessary? She does tell one reason especially in that chapter, but I think I could name a few others. So let's get started. Next to the one put four. We are punished for our sins. This is like the most common view, isn't it? That when people make mistakes or they overtly do the wrong thing, they should be punished for it. That's fine. That's probably the most popular or most well-known definition of what sin is. Okay. But that one, um, it's got ancient roots to it. But let's Let's hear about number two. The first one is for, we are punished for our sins. Number two might be, we are punished by our sins. Now, this maybe has a little bit more defining that needs to be done. You could maybe say that there is only one great sin, and it's idolatry. To put your trust and hope in something other than the unconditional and unlimited God. That to break the first commandment means going to other things, expecting the other things to fulfill you or to fill a void, or to be the thing that rescues you from your own issues. And so in that sense, when we run to other things, rather than God, it's almost like then the sins become our own punishment. It's like, okay, you want to find your identity in cars rather than God, then, okay, maybe your biggest thing is greed, and that's your punishment for how you do idolatry. Or let's say you try to find your identity in your yelling and screaming kids like on the side of the soccer games have you ever seen um like little league games and then there's the the one parent on the side that's just screaming their head off and like whoa this is just peewee league and you tell this guy to slow down it's really um if you're making a god of your own kids then of course maybe your sin might be You're going to be locked in childishness for a pretty long time. You're going to be jealous and you're going to be fuming. So that's number two. Sometimes maybe we can see that we are punished by our sins. But I wanted to to go into a third one. And this, this one, I guess, is a little less spiritual in one way. Well, not overtly spiritual, but I mean, everything is spiritual, right? This one says... Sins can be self-medication. But self-medication for a deeper wound. So, not too long ago I was in Philly and I was meeting up with a friend and we had a discussion about sin sometimes being self-medication. And that when police are brought in and someone is brought into jail for being a prostitute. What if that's really self-medication for a deeper wound in the fact that they were beat as a child? Or let's say the person that's caught in an endless cycle of addiction and alcoholism. Is there not maybe a deeper wound in there? That the mother was negligent? And abusive verbally. And so their sins are really just manifesting the self-destruction that they were told they should do from the time they were a toddler. And so in this sense, sometimes I think we are incredibly harsh on people for their sins. But maybe their sins are just the way that they try to numb the pain for an earlier wound. It kind of reminds me of how a mentor once told me that you should never bother trying to give up a sin until you are ready to learn what it has to teach you about yourself. Because maybe some of our habits are really our go-to things. Our momentary um, comforts They're fleeting, and of course they don't last, but they're comforts that, at least to us and our individual personalities, feel comforting, but it's really just self-medication for a deeper wound that, man, it cuts deep. So that's number three, self-medication. But number four, again, if all things are spiritual, Julian of Norwich, this is what she says, is that our sins are are good because they show us our limits. And that by looking at our sins, I guess this is close to what I had just said, is that our sins can teach us a lot about ourselves. They teach us where we need to grow. They, they teach us the places where we really need other people's help. And so I don't know if Julian's meant necessary as in it has to happen or is it sins are just unavoidable because we are limited. We get exhausted, we get tired, we get frustrated, we get jealous. And so sometimes we just get angry or we judge or we become impatient with one another. So maybe number four could be called self-awareness. But number five, it's God-awareness. Our sins teach us to be aware that if we're limited, yes or no, is there something out there that is unlimited? A fount of real grace and patience and the ability to pick us up and dust us off again and again and again and again. So if number four is self-awareness, number five might be sins help us come to a better God awareness. But all this comes around to say, um, in, in some church circles or in some religious communities, you may have heard it put that the faith is really just about avoid sin, avoid sinning, avoid sinning, but it never gets to the deep root of anything. If you have your entire framework laid out for you and your understanding of life is that it's just to avoid making mistakes, then you've missed the point or you've just been handed a really poor definition of what faith is. Because I don't think faith is just about learning to avoid sinning. Learning to avoid loving the wrong things too much. I think it's about learning how to enjoy this life well. And that's number six. Well, it's not really a definition of sin. It's really a definition of life. That this whole thing isn't about avoiding sin. It's about running towards enjoyable and lovely things. And treating those things as they are, as gifts, but not letting those gifts be our gods. So case in point, I'm not sure if I shared this before, but I'm going to try. Is that a couple years ago, I was running a race and there was a few people that came along to do this with us. So on the car ride up, we dove into a great conversation. Um, Two people in the car were churchgoers and the others were not. And so it was a fun dialogue. I enjoy having those types of conversations. But there was someone in there who said that they were a booting Buddhist. (laughs) They were just growing into their own Buddhism. And maybe this is a poor definition, so I can't say that this speaks for everyone. But their understanding of their Buddhism was that it taught them detachment, to be disassociated from the passions, from the loves, from the pleasures of this life. And I I nodded along and said, okay, that's great. But I said, isn't that just half of the, the deal? And they gave this curious look as they were sitting in my passenger seat. And I said, detachment's one thing, but to me, the Jesus movement or the Jesus tradition, whatever branch, of Christianity you come from it it teaches detachment but it teaches reattachment in the proper way in the to the proper degree so earlier I said a quote from Augustine that says love uh, sinning is loving the wrong things too much well if you read the Sermon on the Mount it seems very much that the Jesus is Trying to teach people to detach from certain values and reattach to the right values. Maybe we've got to stop and rethink the way we approach life because if we think life is all about avoiding sin but it has no place for joy or man, just living life well then that's not something that really excites me. And hopefully it doesn't excite you either because there's no reason anyone would be excited about a life that doesn't have joy or fun or adventure or learning how to walk out in the open field and just appreciate and enjoy every blade of grass, every brush of the breeze, every cloud that flies overhead and every leaf that drops and falls. But I think as we go through some of these thoughts about how to define sin a little bit better beyond the more cliche or simplistic definitions, I think, I think we can also maybe learn to have some compassion. You know, perhaps we should have compassion on those who seem incapable to learn from their sins. Because they just keep on repeating them. It's almost like they're on autopilot. They don't know any other way of life. And they don't know how to open their eyes to learn from their own limitations. They don't want to look at the deeper wounds that's causing them. To love the wrong things too much. To use and abuse other people. Maybe. We need to stop. Like I said, just have a little bit more mercy. Have some compassion. And as the pastor theologian Carl Barth says, we need to take other people more seriously than they take themselves. Because sometimes we can't see our own habits. We can't see our own scripts that we follow. We can't see the fact that each of us have got our own favorite sins. And I think that brings me back to the title. Is that you've crossed the line, Julian of Norwich. She says something really deep here. She says sin is necessary. Maybe that means it's unavoidable. Um, maybe it means something else. Don't I need to read her a little bit more before I can fully answer what she might be saying there. But it's about crossing a line. Yeah, in in classical definition, sin might be disobedience to God's law, but I mean, that's about crossing a line, isn't it? It's just crossing a line. It's about crossing the line above us and, and doing things too much, trying to make ourselves bigger than we ought to be. We're just humans. Yet our pride makes us try to take on all these grandiose things that We're not made to be that big. We're just humans. And so when we try to take the place of God, that's breaking the first commandment. Or maybe we're trying to cross a lower boundary and try to be less than what we are. To be less than human. You see, in that sense, I don't think it's really... um, It's not human nature to sin. It isn't. So maybe we need to stop using that phrase. It's inhuman nature to sin. It's human nature to live and to love well. And so maybe it's right when we say, so-and-so is a monster. Because the more we trample our boundaries, yeah, the less human we are. So maybe it's right when we call some of our own people or ourselves monsters when we've crossed the line too many times. Our limits are a good thing if we let them teach us. And our sins, yeah, we need to make atonement for them too in our own way. Maybe God has fixed the gap between us and Him. But God also wants us to go back and fix the gaps between one another. Because when we trample over the boundaries and we don't respect one another's personhood, that means sometimes... I might trample other people or they might trample me. And that isn't the plan for everything, isn't it? Julian came to a really, really interesting moment when she has this reflection. When she says, God, why did you let sin come into the world? And then she gets comforted. So don't worry, sin's unavoidable, but all will be well, okay? All will be well in every manner of thing, everything, all, all will be well. I don't know how, and I don't necessarily always have the imagination to see how things could be fixed, but I think that's why her quote has been, has been passed down for so long, right? It resonates and it stirs something inside of us. It makes us take a moment and recognize, oh, maybe it's true. All will be well. It's really profound to me that Julian uses the word gentle and tender rather frequently that those are two words that she uses to define God especially as it relates to how God relates to us in the midst of our loving the wrong things too much there may be no way that any of us could have anticipated in the moment how Julian's writings would have been perceived hundreds, hundreds of years down the road. But they're really that good. And I, I don't know if I really even <laughs> result the tension between the comments of sin is necessary, but all will be well. So maybe it would be a good idea for you to dive into that tension yourself. To walk and to talk and to breathe and to argue and to converse and debate and rant and journal and reflect on that simple sentence. Sin is necessary, but all will be well. All will be well in every manner of thing. All will be well. You do that, and I'll do it too. And then maybe we'll come a little bit closer to finding out what it means to really live a life of faith. That sits between the tension, that recognizes our limits, but then says, I trust that there is a scope and a plan to all of this. Man. I don't know what else to say, so I will just say, onward and upward, okay? May all goodness, beauty, and truth, and love be unto you. Peace.